On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, I'm Scott Radley filling in for Rick Zamperin, by the way. Going to be talking with Eric Tuck, who leads the union representing the transit workers with the HSR. They are heading towards a strike vote. What's going on with that? Where are we heading for a strike? We will talk about that one. Also, what about a recession? We were supposed to have a recession, weren't we? Hasn't happened. Marvin Ryder will join us. Young people apparently are feeling pressure to hit marital milestones. There's a mouthful. Why? I thought marriage was not that big a deal anymore for them. Well, we'll get into that one. You can go to a movie for $4 on Sunday. We're going to explain why that is. Academic cheating, it's on its way up. Maybe no surprise there, but we'll explain why that's happening. And the New York Knicks are suing the Toronto Raptors. Why? It is a crazy, crazy story. You'll want to stick around. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Last Friday, we dodged one city strike when QP and the city came up with a tentative agreement. We haven't heard the details on that one yet, but that I believe is being ratified this week. But now we have another possibility of a city strike. The union that represents roughly 850 City of Hamilton bus workers is going to be taking a strike vote this week. Uh, the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107, uh, has been working without, its members have been working without a deal since December. And, um, well, it doesn't sound like things are going all that well in negotiations. Let me bring in Eric Tuck. He's the president of ATU Local 107. Eric, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? Uh, I, I'm great. I appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you talking about this. You um, you were quoted in a in a piece the other day or yesterday saying that you and the city were miles apart. Can you can you give some idea of what miles apart means in where the negotiations are right now? Yes, uh, Scott. As you know, we've had uh, been negotiating for six months now. Uh, we've had 23 days of bargaining. Uh, and we, we, uh, the parties remain considerably apart on wages, safety concerns, and historical rights around the LRT. Uh, as a result, we will be going to our members and asking for a strike mandate. Uh, we're going to get into some of those things in a second, but let's start with the wages. What do, can you say? Are you publicly saying what you're asking for? No, uh, what I what I have it's it's been reported seven percent, but the reality is what we're looking for is wage increases to keep pace with inflation. Uh, for the last two years, we have lost considerably as far as wages go on uh, to the cost of living and to inflation. Last year, we received, for example, a 1.75% increase. And as you know, cost of living uh, and inflation was up around 7%. Mm. So we are looking for wages that keep pace with inflation. Um, our employer so far has offered to our, our non-union staff, and I guess this is one of the big sore points, uh, non-union bureaucrats earning between 120000 and 160000 received an increase already of 4%. And additional uh, to that, they also received a market adjustment, which could be anywhere from 1% to 11%. Um, and for, for my members, they're looking at that and saying, hey, we're living in this same market. We're dealing with the same kind of inflationary pressures that, uh, that those non-union staff are working in and uh, we're paying for those uh, housing prices that have gone up, the gas prices. As you know, everything has gone up, and uh, our members are looking to keep pace with inflation. Has that um, you mentioned that raise that was uh, that was given to the non-union workers? Has that affected the negotiations when the, when that got introduced into the mix? Did that change things as far as your membership and their resolve to get some better money? It, it certainly has. We're asking, you know. Uh, 
Well, we're on the front lines working, uh, especially when you look at the last couple of years going through a major pandemic. Uh, my members showed up every day and they came to work. Many of those uh, uh, non-unionized uh, administration type staff uh, managers, uh, project managers, they work from home. And in fact, many of them are still working in that hybrid uh, work week where they're working from home two to three days a week. That's a huge economic uh, and lifestyle benefit that my members are not seeing. Uh, and they, and we expect to be compensated fairly for that. Correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, typically in the city, and I know it's the case with QP, I don't know if it's the case with your union as well, but have the negotiations not been done with the unions first and then the non-union people match that number? It seems that this time it's backwards, is it not? Or am I wrong about that? No, you're absolutely correct. Uh, In fact, this is the fifth negotiations I've uh, sat in on and and, uh, the third one that I've taken the lead on. And in every one of those uh, negotiations, we've always uh, dealt and resolved our our contract first, and then the non-union staff are traditionally given similar wage increases or slightly higher, uh, but not to the extent that we're seeing today. Uh, and again, when you consider the you know the average uh, transit worker probably earns between sixty to eighty thousand dollars with overtime. Uh, these uh, non-union staff are averaging between one hundred and twenty and one hundred sixty thousand, uh, and with the ele- uh, market adjustment of up to eleven percent, that is going to take them considerably higher. Uh, so if if you've got a consultant that says because of the market uh, uh, here in Hamilton, uh, they require that kind of an increase, we're living in that same market. My members, uh, more and more of them, are moving out of the Hamilton area because they simply can't afford to live here anymore. I want to jump to the other, well, there's other things, but I want to jump to one of the other things that you mentioned right off the top, Eric, that's an issue here, and that is the light, or the LRT, light rail transit job protections. I understand for sure where you're coming from and why you would be interested in this, but is the city even able to discuss this now when they don't yet know, as I understand it, who's going to run or operate the LRT. Can they, can they lock into anything when we still don't know what, who's going to be doing the LRT or running it? Yeah. So, so Scott, I'd ask you to consider the fact that we've been talking about this LRT now for over 10 years. Yep, we have. Uh, we've been in, we've been in negotiations with the province and Metrolinks over this issue. Uh, we've made it very clear, uh, for 125 years, this union has been representing transit in this city, uh, and has, uh, through HSR has been, uh, diligently delivering day in and day out for 125 years. Uh, and we have said from day one that we believe we have historical rights, uh, incorporated into our contract for any conversion of existing service. Uh, this LRT is going to be a conversion of the B-line buses that we currently have. Therefore, we believe that ATU uh, 107 should be operating and maintaining those, those services. Uh, and, you know, when you look at the privatized system uh, that has been in place in Ottawa uh, and, and their LRT system, uh, which has not been running. Uh, in fact, it's been down more than it's been been operating. We want to ensure that that does not happen here in Hamilton. So I think it is a, a incumbent on the city council to give clear direction uh, to Metrolinks that if LRT is coming to Hamilton, it's going to be run by HSR. And, and I, I absolutely understand your point and the points you're making, and you're absolutely right about Ottawa's system. It's been uh, all it's had a lot of problems, but. 
can the city, my, my, I guess my question is, can the city negotiate this with you when they haven't finished negotiating this with the province or Metrolink? So they, the city doesn't yet know who's running it. Can they then promise you that you will be able to have jobs if they don't yet know how it's going to go? So if you've entered into a contract with a party, uh, you have a responsibility to honor that contract. So when you sit down with Metrolinx uh, and you're negotiating the, the deal with Metrolinx, uh, especially when you're going to be paying for that deal, the city of Hamilton taxpayers are on the hook for operating, operating and maintenance costs. So if the taxpayers here are going to be paying for it, they have every right to demand that we are the ones operating and maintaining it so that we have that local control over uh, whether or not Mm. that system is going to be run properly and efficiently. So Eric, do you believe that if the city was to negotiate that with you right now ahead of time as a preemptive thing and say, okay, uh, ATU will give you this, they would then go to the province and say, we've already promised ATU, so therefore we must have control of it. Do you believe they can force the province's hand by negotiating with you first? So as I said, they have already promised us. We have clear language in our collective agreement okay. uh, uh, that says that we will operate that system. Uh, what we're saying is uh, they they need to give clear direction to their staff to put together a bid that includes HSR operating and maintaining it and put that to Metrolinx. Metrolinx, yes, has to be give the final decision on whether that's approved or not. Uh, but you won't know unless you put that bid together and unless you make that argument. And I think there is a strong argument to be made when you look at not just Ottawa, uh, you look at the Eglinton Crosstown, which was contracted out. You look at the services in Toronto for the current LRT systems there, uh, which are not functioning uh, to, to the full potential that they could if they were in-house and run properly. Mm. Eric Tuck, president of ATU Local 107. Very much appreciated, Eric. Thanks for the time today. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate talking to Teresa with you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Remember, not that long ago, we heard over and over and over and over again that we were heading into a recession. Buckle down. The recession is coming. Could be mild, could be heavy, but it's coming. And then, and I'm not an economist, my next guest is, but I was reading something that said, okay, what are the things that could spur or launch a recession? High inflation, increased interest rates, reduced consumer confidence, geopolitical events, natural disasters. If you go through that list, we have hit every single one of those, no recession, which is good. Nobody's complaining, which is good. But I want to bring in Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, it seems as though um, we, as I say, have checked off most of the boxes that should have perhaps taken us to a recession. It's not here. We're not complaining, but why not? Right. Well, first, if you don't mind, let me just put this in some context. Uh, in early 2022, when inflation started to really go crazy, the Bank of Canada said what they wanted to try to do was to cool the economy to bring inflation down, but not stall the economy and cause a recession. Now, we've heard that language before, at least a half a dozen times before, and each time the Bank of Canada was uh, unsuccessful at that attempt. In other words, they did cool the economy, but they stalled the economy and we fell into a recession. So that is why for a year and a half, lots of economic minds have been saying, we don't think the Bank of Canada can do this we're going to have a recession. And as you pointed out, it might be mild, it might be severe, but this is just an impossible task 
to cool the economy and not send it into a recession. Well, here we are a year and a half later, as you say, we've had high inflation. It has been coming down. We've been able to stay full employment, even though it should be going up if we're facing uh, a, a recession, uh, as you say as well, that we've had some other indicators. And But still, and for all, we're not in a recession. And it looks like, as the Bank of Canada wanted to do, it is successfully cooling things. Growth this year in our economy is not going to be great. It's going to be somewhere between 1% and 1.4%, but it's still growth. For a recession to happen, we have to have two consecutive quarters in which the economy shrinks uh, or, in essence, doesn't grow and actually falls back in on itself. We haven't even had one quarter yet. Now, I am speaking without knowing perfectly the second quarter results for this year. That second quarter ended on June 30th, and we should be getting a report on the second quarter sometime in the next two to three weeks. But nonetheless, it looks like we've got through the first half of the year without a recession. Even if we get a bad month here or there, it's really how the whole quarter does. And I'm, I was from the beginning a believer in Tiff Macklem. I have not called for a recession. I actually thought he was clever enough to pull this off. But it will be unprecedented if he can get through this without causing a recession. If we are not having one, and, and based on, you know, you, you've explained that we're not, why do so many people seem to feel like it is almost the, the, the consumer confidence thing? We keep hearing from people that, you know, right. oh, these are tough, tough times. Well, we've had a lot of tougher, tougher times. Why, why is that such a, a constant drumbeat? Right. Well, a couple of reasons. First, it, uh, and this is, I'm not blaming the media here, Scott. I'm not blaming the oh, media. Oh, blame away. It's year, okay. <laughs> but, but for a year and a half, nice people like me have spoken to nice people like you. And we've said the recession is coming. The recession is coming. So people have been hearing this drumbeat of a recession for a year and a half. And as a result, they have become less confident. Uh, that doesn't shock me. Uh, I actually wish people like me, pundits, for lack of a better term, would be a little more careful with their language because this can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, if we all think we're in a recession, then we act like we're in a recession, and guess what? We create our own recession. So uh, I think this is part of the reason why people heard it. As well, uh, as you try to cool an economy, you just don't have great economic news to report. People want to hear something really spectacular, and they're not hearing spectacular things. So then they think, well, I guess things must be pretty bad. But again, the reality is we, we our employment rate has gone up a little, but we are still at nearly record low unemployment rates. That's wonderful. That means the economy is chugging along. It has shown tremendous resilience for the last year and a half, whether they are supply chain problems or, as you point out, the geopolitical problems in Ukraine and Russia. Our economy has shown tremendous resilience. But I think people who who only listen to the drumbeat of the news cycle are hearing this false narrative and starting to believe it. And that's one thing that worries me. If we believe there's a recession, we may cause our own recession. Mm. And, and I don't dispute what you're saying about the fact that it, it has been said over and over again. However, there are a lot of people, Marvin, who really are feeling the pinch right now and maybe conflating the difficulty of getting by with rents and costs and rising price and everything with a recession. Those two things may not be the same thing, but they may feel the same to some people. Yeah, I can also say that a little differently, Scott. When we have good times, whatever good times are, they aren't as good as they once were. So we used to have an economy that would go through 
great highs and then great lows. And boy, when we were in a low, we really knew it. These days, the economy never seems to, to sing. It never seems to get really, really high. But then when it does get low, it tends to be a very mild low. So we never have a period where we can all sit around and say, well, happy days are here again. Look at it. Look at all the milk and honey that's flowing. Uh, as, but also on the other side of it, the milk and honey never really dries up. Uh, and there is there's always challenges. So take homelessness as a great example. We, we have homelessness. We have had homelessness for the better part of 50 years. Sometimes it's just more obvious than mm. others. But we've never, ever really gotten through a period where we've not had homelessness, even in good economic times. That is Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Always love having you on, Marvin. Thanks for taking time today. Glad to be with you, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There was some polling that was done, a survey that was done very recently in the last number of weeks that I read about that suggested that marriage is not something that Gen Z and many millennials think is all that important, that it's really a, almost an outdated idea. Maybe, um, because another poll that's been done, the study that's been done by the Shift Collab says six in 10 single Canadians felt a negative impact on their mental health due to their relationship status. In other words, especially coming out of COVID where things were all messed up as far as being able to get together with friends or create a relationship or whatever else, uh, many are feeling negative impacts of the pressure to try and get married or to be married or to, well, I'll, you know what, let me bring in Megan Refuse. She's a therapist and she's the CEO of Shift Collab. Uh, she can explain this better. Megan, how are you today? Hi, Scott. I'm great. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for coming on. So I, this, I, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, okay, is the, is the, negative impact the fact that they don't have a relationship or the fact that they don't have a relationship and feel like they should have a relationship? So what our study found is that six in 10 single Canadians from the age of 18 to 34, so younger Canadians, admit that they have been experiencing moments of isolation. And this is often driven by the feeling that practically everyone else is in a relationship but them. And so what we see is that 68% of single Canadians of any age also say the same. And so what our study found is that it's actually not surprising that Canadians are experiencing the effects of these missed milestones. And so it's not that they don't want to be in relationships, but rather they're feeling the impact of missing life milestones. And so milestones can include anything from you know, meeting a partner, getting married, um, renting a new apartment, uh, getting a promotion. And so our study really focused on young Canadians in particular. And it was really driven, honestly, by our team of 125 therapists all across the country, starting to flag that, you know, I'm really seeing a lot of my clients in session presenting as really struggling with this feeling of, you know, feeling burdened that their friends and family are celebrating these milestones. They're seeing them on social media where all of us post our highlight reels. And it was starting to cause feelings of compare and despair. So I'm starting to see, you know, my best friend posting about their engagement and about their wedding. And meanwhile, I'm a single Canadian who, you know, has had a really tough time dating during the pandemic 
is really grieving what I thought my life would be at this time versus, you know, where it is, because we all have um, an idea of what our life will be or how it will turn out. And so what we're really seeing is is a lot of grief around, hey, I thought I was going to be here, but I'm really not there right now. And it's really tough to see the people that I care about meeting the milestones that I had hoped for myself. You just said about 18 things that I want to dive into. We don't have time to do all <laughs> of them, but let, let's go back to something you said right at the beginning of that answer, which was that people feel like everyone else is in a relationship. Is that true? Are they? It is not true. So, you know, when we look at our own friends and family, we know that that's not the case. However, our mind actually does something really interesting when we start to compare and feel despair. And so our mind tends to think in all or nothings. And, you know, everyone else is in a relationship but me or everyone else has a partner and I'm the only single friend. And so if you catch yourself thinking that way, it's really important that you start to challenge that and say, you know, there's there's no evidence to suggest that. Um, there are plenty of single Canadians. And um, even though it may feel like everyone is, um, the stats tell mm. us that that's not the case. Something else you mentioned there. Um, I don't know if you had done this study 20 years ago, if it would be the same number or different, but I also don't know if the reason for that would be the same or different. And the reason I mentioned that, you mentioned social media. I, I personally, tell me if I'm way off here. I personally <laughs> think that's the biggest driver of this because of exactly what you said. And nobody posts social media stuff of themselves at their worst or having a crappy day. It's always the best moments to show how wonderful everything is. And we get deceived. Is that a strong, too strong where we get deceived by this into thinking that everyone else is having a perfect life except for us? You know, I think that's a really fair statement is that it's really important we recognize that what we see on social media is not the reality of everyone else's life. So it's not the case that everyone else always wears matching clothes and has beautiful photo shoot photos <laughs> and we're the only ones who just aren't living that way. Um, something interesting that we found in this Angus Reid study, which actually surveyed over 1,500 Canadians is that our data demonstrate that over a third of unmarried Canadians did also feel internal pressure to get married. And so there's something called external pressure, which is, you know, the feeling of, hey, I'm seeing everyone else in these relationships. My family is telling me that I need to get married. Yep, yep. You know, we've probably most of us have been at a party where, you know, some relative has showed up and say, hey, you're not married yet. Why are you still single? And so beyond the external pressure, a lot of us are really um, experiencing internal pressure. And so, you know, we're telling ourselves, hey, maybe I'm not good enough if I haven't met anyone yet. Um, mm. You know, maybe I, I'm not going to meet the milestone and that can really cause us to spiral. And so if we do miss our self-imposed goals or ideals, we're actually grieving what could have been. And so it's really tough for people, you know, not only to see uh, what everyone else is doing on social media, then to get pressure from family or friends or just society in general. I mean, every movie we watch um, is a rom-com about of course, <laughs> relationships. Of yeah. And then on top of that, we also have the internal pressure, which is our self-talk telling us, you know, I should be married or I should be in a relationship or, 
you know, by the time I'm 30, I really thought I was going to have all my ducks in a row, you know, house, white picket fence. No kidding. And apartment. No kidding. And I'm we're just, you know, it's, society is different. Things are a lot more expensive. And it's really important when we see um, photos of people we care about on social media that we're not just thinking, oh my gosh, everybody has what they want except for me. Megan, I've got 10 seconds. So, and, and this is an unfair question in 10 seconds, but if you took people off social media, what do you think, six and 10, what do you think the number would be who still think that they're not achieving what they should? H how much would that drop if they weren't on social media? You know what? I can't say exactly in terms of research, but what I can say is that we're still social creatures. And I think a lot of us, um, still value connection and want connection. And so it's hard to say, but I do know when people come to therapy, we really support them in being proactive in dealing with life milestones as they come up. Megan Refuse, a therapist and CEO of Shift Collab. Uh, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This summer seems to be the summer that people have decided in on mass to return to the movie theaters. Well, now it's, you know, let's, let's build on that. It seems to be the idea here because on Sunday during national cinema day, if you haven't been to the movies yet recently or missed one of the ones you wanted to see or something, uh, there's a pretty good deal going for you. Uh, Nuria Bromfin is executive director of the movie theater association of Canada. She joins us now. Thanks for the time this morning. Hello. How are you? I'm terrific. How are you doing? I'm great. Four bucks on Sunday to go watch a movie. That's pretty good. I know. Can you believe? It's going to be great. We, uh, we started this last year, and uh, people came out in droves, so we decided to, um, to try again this year. $4 for all showtimes, all formats. Um, so it's going to be a great day, and as you said, if you haven't seen something, you know, now's your chance to, to see it. Take the whole family. Take your friends. I'm certainly going to be there. Are you going to go? You know what? I probably will. Uh, I probably will because why not? I mean, I've got a theater yeah. across the street from me, and uh, even perfect. if it's a even if it's a movie I don't really want to see, it's four bucks. <laughs> you there know, you go. Maybe you stumble onto something that you like. Who knows? Yeah, absolutely. W was it fair to say that when you started this last year, or when the the association started this last year, that the big part of this was to try and drag people back to the theaters because it had been so long for so many people because of COVID. Well, I wouldn't say drag, but I would say... Lure, lure, attract, <laughs> entice. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I mean, as everybody knows, you know, movie theaters had a very hard time, obviously, during COVID. We were completely shut. Um, you know, we, we couldn't show anything. We couldn't open. So really, this was a thank you to everybody who came back to the movie theaters, who supported the movie-going experience in the theater. Um, it was also a chance for us to say, hey... Get out of your house, get off the couch, come to a movie, come with your family, come with your friends, come with the community that loves to watch movies in a theater. And it was a huge success. So we decided, you know, this year has been a great summer in the movie theaters, as you said. And so this is sort of a, a thank you. Thank you for supporting us and thank you for coming out and, you know, come back and see something either you mm -hmm. haven't seen or see something again um, that you'd like to see. I, for one, I'm going to go see Barbie again. So yeah, it's going to be a really fun day. I know that lots of theaters across the country are doing special promotions and fun activities uh, for their community 
at the theater. So I would encourage everybody to come out and check it out. This, this summer, notwithstanding, with Barbie and with Oppenheimer and with, uh, you know, there's a few others that have done very well, uh, leaving those alone, is it still a challenge? Because now that there are so many streaming services and so many options and so many ways to stay home where the food is included in your fridge and the toilet is clean and the chair is always comfortable. <laughs> I mean, is that, is it, a, is it still a tough thing the, or a tougher thing these days to convince people to actually make the effort to go to a theater? Do you know what, do you know what we, we find really, and this is, and this summer is testament to that. When there are movies that people want to see in theaters, people will come. It's really reliant on the, on the content, obviously, um, so, you know, when, when, when there's, when there's films that are, that people want to see, they will come to the theater. And I think especially after, you know, having been in their homes for so many years, um, uh, you know, I think that people are realizing again, there's really no, no better place to see a movie than a movie theater. Um, it's, you know, the entire experience of seeing it with other people, of laughing with other people, of being scared with other people. So it's a very different offering, obviously, than in your home. Nobody's calling you. Nobody's, you know, um, there's no distractions. You don't have to take Well, sometimes. <laughs> so, so, some people are getting calls, apparently, still. I've seen that still. Yeah, oh, well, <laughs> we, don't, we don't like that. Um, <laughs> we don't encourage that, no, for sure. No, no. But, uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a very different experience. But, yes, when there is, when there are movies that people want to see, they will come to the theater. So there's going to be lots of new uh, films coming out this year, and so we're hoping that this this trend keeps keeps on going. And for sure, you know, as kind of a closer to the season and a kickstart to the fall um, National Cinema Day, I think is a, a fun a fun uh, great offering mm-hmm. for audiences everywhere. This is not your responsibility because you're, you know, you deal with the final product once it's in the theaters. But with what you just said, all I could think is, boy, the, 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 that puts immense pressure, more pressure probably than ever before on the studios to produce stuff. Now that with what you just said, if you put a, if you have a movie that people want to see, they will come. My goodness, yeah. that is a ton of pressure on them because if it doesn't, it just means people weren't interested. I mean, it's plain and simple. They won't just go because, hey, I got a day and I'll go to the theater because I used to. Well, some people might, but, but, you know, this is, we've been having the, and I mean, listen, they're, they're more aware of this than, of course. than anybody else. Um, obviously the, the content creators are, are more aware of this than anyone. So this is a discussion that we've been having with them for forever. Um, it's not a new thing. Um, so, you know, we, we, we always um, try to encourage a mix of, of different kinds of movies for different kinds of audiences. Um, and I think, again, you know, this summer has been testament that, um, uh, to that and, um, you know, to, to the fact that when you have films out there that different demographics want to see, they'll come. Yeah, but and, it, so, and it proves your point, though. It proves, Oppenheimer and Barbie, just two of them have proved your point. If people want to yeah. see them, they will come out. Uh, Sunday is, uh, is National, Cinema, what is it? National Cinema Day. There we go. $4. Uh, I've just looked yep. it up here. Uh, Ancaster, Silver City, Stony Creek, uh, Jackson Square, all are participating. Uh, there are others in this area as well. I, I may have uh, Westdale Theater. Um, yeah, there's, uh, if you go to nationalcinemaday.ca, uh, all participating theaters Excellent. are listed there. Excellent. Uh, Nuria Bronfen, I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Sunday, all day, every movie, every theater, every time, every format, as she said, $4. So if there's one of them that you've been wanting to see and haven't got around to it yet, 
There you go. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Studiosity Canada has looked um, at some things to do with students in school and other things in education. And looking at the use of artificial intelligence, including chat GPT, 40%, over 40% of students who responded to this poll say they have personally witnessed instances of cheating facilitated by artificial intelligence. And 26% say they are more likely to consider cheating because of this. Now, what we, what I don't know, and maybe my next guest will tell me is how many people are cheating anyway, whether it's with artificial intelligence or not, but this doesn't seem like it's a terribly positive development that we now have devices and people saying they're willing to do this. Uh, Noreen Golfman is an advisory board member with Studiosity. She's a retired professor and provo at Memorial University. Joins me now, Noreen. Thank you for this today. Sure. Hi. Good morning. Really glad you could join us on this one because this does seem problematic on its face that this many people are apparently using new technology to cheat. But before we get to that part, do we know how many people just generally in the past, have we ever done a study on how many people were cheating even without the technology that was at their fingertips? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, uh, I would say it's probably a little less than what we're seeing now, but I don't have hard evidence about that. We just started doing this, uh, these surveys in the last few years to get a handle on this changing environment. So there might be studies out there. I just don't mm. know what they are. It's not surprising, I wouldn't think, though, because as you have technology, especially technology as easy as this and as tempting as this, it's going to, that's probably the word, it's going to become a temptation for some people to use it. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I I would say it's best not to panic about this as an educator and um, as somebody who's, you know, been distributing information on academic integrity all her life in the classroom. Um, this is not going away. So I think the best thing for us to do is to try and figure out who's using it, how are they using it, and what can we do to harness some of that technology to be informative and instructive instead of just punishing students for taking advantage of something that's so easily accessible. So I, I think it's it's a it's a kind of challenge for us to figure out what to do with this instead of just being all negative about it right now. This may be a really dense question, and so forgive me for this, but do you think most university students acknowledge or understand or agree that using AI like ChatGPT would be cheating? Or do you think that maybe the perception is, well, it's not really cheating, it's just helping me write something? Oh, I think we have to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think the survey underscores their understanding that it is a form of cheating. Uh, They're relying on um, artificial intelligence instead of their own, you know, innate skills to, uh, to assist them in assignments. And, you know, that's a pretty clear uh, a pretty clear way of thinking about what uh, might be ethical gray area. I'm sure they understand that. So what, what 
can be done. I mean, right now it seems like the professors and teachers in high school or wherever are up against it a little bit because this is this is advanced beyond now someone who takes a line out of an old Coles notes book because the teacher could go and find that yeah. and easily or or even previous before artificial intelligence, even if you pulled something offline, the teacher could copy and paste something, drop it into Google search, and if it pops up, they go, oh, gotcha. This eliminates that. This is beyond that. So w- what can professors or teachers do, if anything, at this point? Well, you know, it, that's the big question. And I think that's why we're trying to figure out, excuse me, what the motives are for students doing this, uh, what their understanding is. Is AI actually um, helping them to understand better writing, for instance? In other words, you know, we're just at the, I, I guess, in the embryonic stages of understanding how this technology can be a learning aid instead of just um, some kind of ethical violation. And educators themselves, I think, are going to have to start, and some have, um, harnessing the technology to understand it themselves, maybe bringing it into the classroom, maybe pointing out where those lines are between copying, violating ethical practice, and actually helping as a kind of tutor with better writing and shaping their own writing and their own ideas. I mean, AI and the technologies available now, ChatGPT, can't do the thinking for them, but it can, um, at least at this stage, start to help formulate paragraph development, continuity, um, devices and techniques that, you know, tutors might have been helping them with, for instance. Uh, we do know there are professors across the country who have quite boldly taken AI into their classrooms. There's examples of this in all kinds of, of course curriculum where they are using it as a device with the students to compare their own, let's say, drafts of an essay with the AI informed. And they're often pointing out, well, sometimes the AI is actually not helping. Sometimes it's interfering in uh, the representation of facts, of proper evidence. So we have to think about what the survey tells us about what we can do. As I say, it's not going away. What we can do to use it to help with the learning process. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating because one of the other things too we got to run here is occasionally AI is actually wrong. It grabs something off the internet that is wrong. And I'm just waiting. I'm sure it's happened that for the first student to come in and hand something in with a piece of information that is completely wrong and then have to explain, where'd you find it? Well, my AI, oh, I guess I can't say that. Um, Yeah, it it becomes a tricky one for sure. Uh, Noreen Golfman, advisory board member of Studiosity and retired professor and provo at Memorial University. Uh, Great chat. Thanks for doing this today. Sure, thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. One of the odder stories we're going to talk about on Good Morning Hamilton, but I don't know if it should be. And the reason this is such an unusual story, we don't hear about this very much. The New York Knicks are suing the Toronto Raptors and Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment saying the Raptors had a mole working within the Knicks organization to steal stuff information and i guess plays and details and i don't know let me bring in dr michael narain from uh, brock university school of sport management uh thanks for doing this today really appreciate you jumping in oh no thanks so much for having me 
So when I say this is a weird story, it is definitely weird, um, largely because I don't know why if the Raptors were going to have a mole somewhere, why you wouldn't choose a really good organization to steal from. But besides that, I'm amazed we don't hear about this more often because coaches move around all the time. Assistant coaches move all the time. I'm amazed this isn't a common story. Well, and that's going to be the the tricky part. And, you know, I'll preface by saying I'm not a a lawyer. I don't have a juris doctorate uh, at the moment. That's maybe something in the future I'm working on. But, um, (laughs) you know, I I think, you know, it's really difficult to to make the claim that the Knicks are and the allegation that, you know, it's difficult to really identify, you know, how a current employee could then take files and maybe, you know, almost act as a double agent and get paid on the side or the promise to get a position in the future. And that's, that's essentially what, what the Knicks and, uh, sorry, Madison Square Garden Entertainment are alleging that, uh, the employee as a TAM, um, was, yeah, being a double agent and then took proprietary files, scouting analytics pieces, not just the plays that the Knicks were running, but his analysis of other teams. So his work, you know, there's a few files mentioned on the Pacers and a few other teams. And that uh, when the Raptors signed their new head coach um, th- this off season, um, he had a relationship with Azatam. And when Azatam left the Knicks, that magically he showed up in, in, uh, in Toronto with those files. And so, and so it was, so it was work, presumably the, the theory, or at least the accusation is it was work that he had done and then he brought it with him. Yeah. And that, that, that that's what the Knicks are alleging. Again, it's going to be super difficult to, uh, to, to, in my opinion, to hammer this down. And, and, and what I think ultimately will happen will be some sort of, closed room negotiation between the two sides and we'll come to some sort of financial agreement. But I think it speaks to a much larger piece. And, and you mentioned this off the top, Scott, that, you know, head coaches jump ship all the time. And we see this in baseball, right? Like sign stealing yes, or you yes. know, what, happens, what, what happens when a catcher moves to a different team? Like they know, you know, that, you know, the number three and touching the chest means this. And, um, you know, uh, you know, in other sports as well, football, football, you know? football is huge. You, you walk away from a team and you know, the playbook, I guarantee you that if you are a defensive end or whatever, take any position and you move to a different team, the first time you play your old team, I guarantee you, your coach is sitting by you in the locker room going, so tell me, what do I need to know? I guarantee well, I, you. I, I, a hundred hundred percent, but but it, I would even extrapolate her further. And when we talk about a league like the CFL, which is very incestuous when it comes to its um uh its head coaching and its assistant coaching, um, you know, when it, when a guy moves from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers to the, the Rough Riders, you know, they're gonna take the that tacit knowledge with them, right? right. It, it's it's being in the inner circle. So it's gonna be really difficult in my view. Um again, I don't know. A hundred percent of the details in the allegation and, and maybe some of the evidence, uh, that the Knicks have, uh, on their end. Um, and it'll maybe come out in discovery if it gets to that point. But I think, you know, ultimately this is the, just the, the nature of, of professional sport that, you know, some folks are going to have tacit knowledge that they're going to bring with them. Now, if there were files that were security coded that were in the Knicks database that somehow Azatam ascertained, downloaded onto his own servers, uh, his own private emails. And we're starting to get into very political speak here, but, but, but that's really ultimately what this comes down to is, but is there a difference? <laughs> Michael, let me jump in. Is there a difference? Honestly, if, if I could, if I could memorize a playbook or I could have the files on paper, but essentially I'm bringing the same information. Is there a difference just because it's on paper or on a file? 
Yes, there is a difference between something that is on paper that is property of your employer versus something that you just kept in your mind. Again, if you wrote it on a napkin and you redrew it and you kept that napkin in your pocket, you know, again, technically, I'm not a lawyer, but my sense is that is not necessarily uh, property. Now, again, the intellectual property component to it gets a little bit dicey, but as far as the actual physical file, yes, technically that is property of your employer. And so if that was the case that, that Azatam, the employee, uh, allegedly took downloaded files from Nick's servers onto his own private computer or private phone, and then you, and, you know, shared it with Nicholas Force Entertainment, then you're, you're a bit in tricky water. But yeah, again, like you mentioned in sport, Hey, look, I played with Bill Belichick. So I know that, you know, when they, you know, touch their nose and, and, you know, do this, that this play, this trick play is going to happen. Like that's, you know, that's, that's tacit knowledge, but it's not necessarily, it might be immoral or unethical, but it's not necessarily illegal. Well, I don't know how it would even be considered. See, this is where this gets so tricky because if you know of what you just described that like catch your nose, the signs, you would be an idiot to say, well, I'm not going to use them. That that team allowed you to go, traded you, let you go as a free agent, whatever. They decided they didn't want you. The it's the I, in in some ways it would be you've been trained by that organization, so the physical skills that you have gained from it, you wouldn't say, well, I'm not going to use those now. I'm going to start over again. It's just yeah, and and and, and I, I you know I and that that's at the behest of of that organization. You know I. <laughs> I'll say this, that the New York Knicks, despite the fact that, uh, sorry, Madison Square Garden um, did fairly well in this last quarter. It is a publicly traded company. Um, for the last 20 years, I, I would uh, argue that and opine that that organization has been completely backwards. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised um, that this is coming out from the James Dolan school of, you know, um, you know, just wizardry and witchcraft, but, <laughs> but, but, but at the end of the day, yeah, you're right. I mean, if you, you know, in this, in this cartel like system, that is professional sport, you have to, you know, come to a realization that you, you're going to let some of your talent go, not necessarily because you want to, but maybe they get a better opportunity elsewhere, more and money, take something with them and take yeah, something yeah, whatever the situation is. And yeah, they may take some of that tacit knowledge with them what i will say on uh it, on the side of the next though is if this employee in question now ex-employee as a tam if he was stupid enough to go around running his mouth uh to, to other people at the knicks or in basketball it is a small world if he started running his mouth about oh you know i, I took the stuff with me or you know, yeah that's um that, that yeah. would be, yeah, we got to, we yeah. got to run, unfortunately, Michael, but the, yeah, that would be something. And, and I also, and we got to go, but I also think that if they are successful, if the Knicks somehow are successful, I could see this happening a lot more because I got to believe that it does happen a lot more than we think. Uh, that's Michael Narain, Dr. Michael Narain from Brock University School of Sport Management. Thanks for this. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.